Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord God, I do thank you so much uh, for this morning, this beautiful day, and this opportunity that you've given to us to be able to come and to gather. Lord, as we sang, we worship you, we adore you, Lord. We do that. We, we praise you, Lord, through our singing, and Lord, now through our study of your word. Lord, we do that through our prayer and through our fellowship. I pray that this morning brings a smile to your face, Lord, as we're gathered here to worship you. Lord, I pray that you've already begun to prepare the soil of our heart. Lord, that we might be able to receive what it is that you have to speak to us this morning. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. 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 Well, there once was a man who was concerned because he was afraid that his wife's hearing was starting to go. So while he was visiting the doctor for himself, he said, doctor, I'm afraid my wife's hearing is going. And he says, well, try this. When you go home and she has her back to you, say something to her and see if she can, she, she can hear you, and, and then you'll, you'll know. And so he was like, oh, great idea. So when he came home that afternoon, he walked into the house, and he saw that his wife was in the kitchen with her back to him. And so he said, oh, this is a perfect opportunity. So he said, honey, what are we having for dinner tonight? No response. So he walked a little closer. Honey, what are we having for dinner tonight? Still no response. So he thought, oh. he got a little bit closer. And he said, honey, what are we having for dinner tonight? His wife didn't respond. So he thought, oh man, this is bad. So he walks up and he taps her on the shoulder and he says, honey, what are we having for dinner? And she turns around and she says, for the fourth time, chicken. Now you see, <laughs> you see, he thought she had a problem, <laughs> but he was wrong. He had a problem. How many of you have ever been wrong? Any of you have ever been wrong? It's not easy to admit it, right? It's not easy to admit that you're wrong. Well, I promise that's going to come up later on. Uh, it's funny, but it's going to come up later on. Anyway, last week, we looked at the first half of chapter 4. Jesus, after his baptism, he goes out into the wilderness where he is tempted by the, the devil. And we looked at why that was necessary, because it says that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because he was in all points tempted, yet he did not give in to sin. And we looked at the different ways that the devil tempted him. Um, really, Matthew only lists out three, but you know, in the other Gospels, it says it was 40 days of tempting, not just these three instances. These three were probably the most intense since it was right at the end when he had fasted for 40 days and was, was feeling hungry and was probably weak in his constitution, um, where the, the devil comes and he, he tempts him. But what, what we looked at and what I think is really the most important thing is Jesus didn't just resist temptation, but he resisted temptation in the same way that we are able to resist temptation. He didn't do anything supernatural to resist the devil. He quoted scripture. 
He clung to the word of God to resist the temptations that the devil was flinging at him, trying to get him to uh, turn these breads into stone, trying to you know, put your flesh and authority over your spirit. He was saying, make God prove himself to you. And finally, he says, just worship me. Just worship me. It's almost like that. that's what the devil was trying to get to all along. Just worship me. That's what the devil wants. That's what he's always wanted. That's why he got booted out of heaven in the first place. And, and it says that Jesus clung to the word of God by quoting scripture back to him. And so not only was he tempted in the same ways that we are tempted, but he resisted those temptations in the same way that we can resist temptation. I talked about this last week with the idea that in, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about the armor of God and the piece of the armor that is called the, spirit, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is the only piece of the armor that's actually offensive as well, where you can actually fend off the attackers. And it is the word of God that we use the word of God. And so who remembers? I gave you a fencing lesson <laughs> last week. At least the first lesson. Do you remember, anybody remember what the first lesson was? You could say it. If you know it, you could say it. Check your notes. James chapter 4, verse 7 was the first one. It says, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. First, first lesson. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then I'm adding in, this is your second lesson now, or third, I guess, if you want to count seven, eight, and ten, is the third lesson. And it says, give me a second, because I just completely am drawing a blank. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord, and he will lift you up. That is at least a very good beginning on how to resist temptations when they come, and they will. Jesus says, I was tempted as you have been and as you will be. You can resist as I resisted, not in supernatural powers, but in clinging to the word of God. Amen? So then... Matthew goes on. We left off here um, in verse 11, 12. In verse 11, Matthew writes that the devil left him. You know, in Luke, it says that he left him for an opportune time, which means the devil said, all right, I have to go because Jesus says, away with you, and the devil must obey. And so he goes, but in Luke, it says that he went away for an opportune time, meaning he's like, I'll, I'm going to go, but I'll be back because there will be opportunity that will come up where I could try and tempt you again to worship me, especially. Remember, we looked at a couple of examples last week where the devil comes back at Jesus. One was when, when Peter comes to him, and Peter identifies that, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father from heaven has revealed this to you. And Peter's thinking, hey, all right. I'm the guy. And then Jesus starts talking about the fact that he has to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be beaten by the, the Pharisees and, and he's going to go to the cross and be crucified. He also says, by the way, that I'm going to go into the grave and rise again. Um, um, and I guess Peter didn't hear that part 
Because Peter takes Jesus aside and he says, you know, Jesus, you don't, you don't say that. That's never going to happen to you. In fact, what he says is, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. It's the same temptation that the devil said, worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the heaven. You don't need to go to the cross. If Jesus had not done that, there would be no redemption for mankind. He would have had the kingdoms and the glory, maybe, if the devil kept his word, which is not likely because, well, he's the devil. He lies. He says the same thing to Peter that he said to the devil in the wilderness. Get behind me. Away with you, he says. The other time was when he's literally on the cross, dying. And the Pharisees mock him and they say the same thing to him that, that Satan said, if you are the son of God, come down off that cross. Show us your power. Prove yourself to us. And then we'll believe, the Pharisees say. And I think, man, it's a good thing that I'm not Jesus. Because I would have come down off that cross in a big way. I would have been like, bam, 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 lightning, thunder, hurricanes. <laughs> the problem is you also would have been lost. I might have gotten the glory, but you would have been lost. And that's not why he came. He held himself there on the cross, not by the nails, by the way, which he holds, holds together himself, but by the desire to die for sin, your sin and my sin. That's what held him there. John in, picks up here, and this is where we pick up, and in, in John, uh, John, I don't know, Fred, Mark, I, I don't know who it is, it's Matthew. Verse 12, now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee. Of course, he's talking about John the Baptist, his cousin, whose message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, we talked about that. Well, Jesus hears that John is now in prison and he departs and goes to Galilee. You know, Jesus isn't running away. He's actually going into the region of Galilee. And it says, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled. This is how we recognize Matthew's gospel. This is his favorite phrase, that it might be fulfilled. Why? Remember, Matthew is a Jew. He's writing to Jews. He's writing about the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies of the Messiah to come. And so Matthew wants to point out every time that Jesus fulfills prophecy of the Messiah so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sit in the region and, and shadow of death, light has dawned. Matthew points to Isaiah chapter 9 as a fulfillment of Jesus, uh, Jesus fulfilling this messianic prophecy, saying that one was going to come who would come to the region or the land of the Gentiles. And when Isaiah wrote this, there were Gentiles in this area, but in Jesus's time, there were way more. And so Matthew is pointing to the fact that Jesus, by moving to this region uh, of Galilee, and specifically the town of Capernaum, that he is fulfilling prophecy, the one who is the light who is coming to those who are sitting in darkness. It, 
And then it's, just look at this, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word preach right there um, just means uh, proclaim. Uh, and it literally comes from what we would say, herald. Um, a herald was a guy that a king would send on before him. It was A herald was a person who announced something directly from the king to all the people. This is what it says that Jesus was coming directly from the king with a message to the people. And the message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, in... in uh, Mark's gospel, it's a little more than that. He says, the time has now been fulfilled when he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what's interesting to me is that Jesus hears that John is put into prison. John's ministry and message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's one coming whom I'm preparing the way for, who is so great, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Repent, he says, there's one coming. John gets thrown into prison. You know, John was radical, not just because of his clothes or his diet, maybe that too, but um, John was not afraid to call out sin. And so when he went to the king of the time and he said, look, you, you, you married your brother's wife and that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. And his brother's wife, who was his now wife, got very upset and they threw him into prison. And now that's where John is. He's in prison. Um, but Jesus hears that. And he picks up the message of John, the same message of John that we see right here. This is what John was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus now comes in and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like Jesus says, um, I'm going to pick up this message and I'm going to carry it. And as I read that, I thought, oh man, evil, evil thinks that it can stop the messenger and the message stops. But the Bible says that evil can stop the messenger, but it can never stop the message. Do you know that from the point that John started to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand, has never stopped being preached until even today, because I'm saying the words right now to you, that message has never been stopped. Evil cannot stop the proclamation of the gospel. Amen? Amen. It can try. It can kill the messengers, can never kill the message. Jesus, though, is saying something slightly different than John, whereas John's saying, there's one who's coming. John, Jesus says, and it's me. I'm here. It's me. There, do you ever, do you know, oftentimes you'll read where someone will say, well, there's one that we're supposed to be waiting for, and Jesus will say, the one that you're waiting for is talking to you right now. It's like, Jesus, just say it's me. Can you just say it's me? <laughs> oh, Jesus. You know what, though, Matthew, um, Matthew goes right from the temptation in the wilderness right to here where it says um, that he came to Capernaum. And then it's going to say, oh, he saw two brothers fishing on the Sea of the Galilee. Matthew skips like a year of time right here. He goes right from this temptation in the wilderness to Jesus coming into Capernaum and calling Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and calling them. And there's like a whole 
year of ministry that goes on in between there. I mean, Matthew doesn't talk about the wedding at Canaan. Matthew doesn't talk about the woman at the well. Matthew doesn't talk about Jesus coming into the, cleansing the temple for the first time. G- Matthew doesn't talk about healing the, the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. He goes right to, now he's in Capernaum. And I asked myself that question, like, I wonder why Matthew didn't like, write that stuff. And I, I don't know, but I have some ideas. Um, one is Matthew was always very much about the fulfillment of prophecy. That Matthew, that Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of the Messiah. And so that's why he hits over and over again. So it was written. Uh, the other part of it is, maybe, um, Matthew is from Capernaum. This is actually where Matthew is when Jesus calls him personally to follow him. You don't see that until Matthew chapter 9. But this is where Matthew is. It's like Matthew is saying, look, look, I, I had to record his birth in the genealogy because that is all about fulfillment of prophecy. And, and I had to um, write about his baptism because uh, that also was its, you know, prophesied that he would be counted among his transgressors. And I had to write about the temptation because it was going to show that he was um, you know, tempted in the same ways that we were tempted, but he's our great high priest. Um, but then I just want to get to the part where I met Jesus. When it's almost like he's like, I had to write these parts in, and then I just want to get to where I met Jesus, the part where Jesus called me personally. Imagine, imagine that experience for Matthew's a tax collector. Everybody hates him. The, the people, that he, the other Jews that he's collecting taxes from hate this guy. He's not lovable. He's not nice. He chose a profession that meant that he had to cheat his own people in order to make money. He chose money over his family. He chose money over his friends. He chose money over relationships. The Romans don't like him because they don't like any of the Jews. They're looked at as dogs. He has no one but the other tax collectors and the other sinners and his money. And Jesus comes along and he says, you, follow me. He must have been like, Me? Why would you call me? Honestly, I've asked myself that same question. Why would you call me? What's special about me? And he's like, you're not special. I'm special. Imagine. And Matthew's like, I'm out of here. (laughs) And off he goes. But there's such good stuff in that year that I don't want to skip it. So, (laughs) turn over instead today to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 is where it picks up in the same place, but he's going to fill it out a little bit. It's going to, and in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14, then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the news of him went through all of the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and was his, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood to read. So Jesus goes back to the town that he's brought up in. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem, and then they had to flee to Egypt, and then once Herod was dead, they came back from Egypt, and and, uh, God sent them into Nazareth, the home of uh, the the town that Mary and Joseph uh, were living in. And remember how hard that must have been for them to do that. I mean, Mary was pregnant not by Joseph, and people knew it. 
Joseph did not put her out or divorce her. He married her anyway. He was going to be raising a child that wasn't his. How hard was it for them to be obedient to go back into Nazareth? But they went anyway. You know, and this is what I, God keeps reminding you of this. Why did they go back? I, I have to believe that they understood that this was bigger than they were. This was bigger than them. This is bigger than us. This isn't about us. It's bigger than that. When we're obedient to God, we're saying, I am a part of your plan, which is bigger than me. It's not about me. They go back to Nazareth and it says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And so you have to understand that it wasn't unusual for the synagogues to invite special guests to sometimes do the reading and then commentary or teach on the reading from that day. And so now Jesus is an adult man. um, And you know that he has a bit of a following. People are starting to follow him. And again, just so you know, for rabbis at the time to go to people and ask them to follow them, that wasn't unusual. It happened all the time. Um, There wasn't anything weird or culty about someone coming up and saying, you follow me, I'll be your rabbi, you be my student. That wasn't unusual. In fact, it was pretty cool if a rabbi wanted you to follow him. And so Jesus goes into the synagogue and they ask him to do the reading for that day. And um, they hand him the scrolls. Now you have to understand, like, um, the, the word was written not in a book with pages like we have, but on these two big scrolls. And you would kind of turn it like this to advance the scroll. And then you, when you were done, you would roll it up and you would put it back. And then they would say, okay, the reading is in Isaiah today. And they would hand Jesus the scriptures. Uh, he would unroll, open it up to the place that it was to be read that day. And so then he reads this and it says that he, oh, they handed him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, and this is what it said, and this is what Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives, and recover the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord." Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Just so you know, we got this whole thing backwards. When time came to teach, the teacher sat down and everybody else stood up. But I stand and you sit. Maybe next time we'll try it different. I'm going to put a chair here. And you'll have to stand for 55 minutes. We're not going to do that because I really want you to come back. But... This is how they would do it. And Jesus sat down and it says that all eyes, uh, all the eyes of those who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, and look at this, holy cow. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they're like, what, what, what? Look at what it says. The Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover sight of the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, who proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus sits down and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What is he saying? It's about me. This that I just read, that by the way, was today's reading, Jesus says, is about me. 
22 says, they all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now you have to imagine this. This man is teaching them in their, in their synagogue. This man who you, if you were older than him, probably knew him from when he was a little boy. When they're like, isn't this Joseph's son? They're like, oh yeah, that's Jesus. He made my coffee table. This is the guy who is standing in front of you, opening up the word of God and now saying, this scripture is being fulfilled in your presence in me right now. That would be strange. Wouldn't that, don't you think that would be strange? He said to them in verse 23, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever you have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. All right, so imagine Jesus is standing there before him. The, the young man that they've known, some of them, their whole lives or his whole life, um, he was there, he went away. You might have heard some things. In fact, they heard uh, of some of the things that he did. Maybe they heard about the wedding or maybe they heard about stuff that he'd done in Capernaum. Maybe they heard about some of the miracles because that's what he's addressing. You get the impression that right here, right before verse 23, they said, if you are, then do something. Do something miraculous to show us, like some of those things that you've been doing around the area. Show us, prove to us you are who you say you are. And he says to them, you will say to me, physician, heal yourself. He's saying, you're asking me to do a miracle, to do some kind of trick that's going to show you who it is that I say that I am. And then he said, surely I say to you, no prophet is acceptable accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the day that Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine through all the land. But, But none of them, but to none of them, Elijah was sent except for Zarephath. And in the region of Sidon, the woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elijah and the, the, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman, uh, Naaman the Syrian. And so Jesus gives them, he says, basically what he says is, um, I'm not going to do miracles to prove to you who I am. There, it wasn't always just to show these miracles. He's saying it wasn't always just to put God's glory on the, on the pedestal for you to see. It was very selective and it was for God's purpose. And Jesus says, um, I'm not going to do that. In fact, later on, he'll say, oh, this generation seeks a sign in order to believe, but no sign will be given except for this, that the son of man will go in like Jonah into the belly of the whale for three days and come out. He says, my death and resurrection will be the only sign that I will give you. It should be the only sign that you actually need. They believed something about Jesus and they were wrong. They were wrong. They were like, oh, we know this guy. This is Jesus, carpenter's son. He plays soccer with my kids (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) You know, <clears throat> he can't be the one that the scripture is about. He can't be. He's not willing even to show us any kind of a miracle. And so they're upset. They're wrong about him. 
And they cannot get past that. They cannot accept Jesus for who he says he is because they had an understanding of who they thought Jesus was. But he was something different and they could not handle it. Also, because we see this, so all of those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Well, there's probably several reasons. Number one, he's sitting there now and he's saying, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah. That really upset them because they're like, well, you're not a military leader. You don't have any power. You're, the, you're our neighbor's kid. At the same time, he kind of was saying, or he wasn't saying, but they may have been interpreting Jesus saying, you're not worthy of a miracle, as these, but these Gentiles were. These Gentiles that I've healed, these people that I mentioned, were worthy of a miracle, but you were not. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that, but it could be that they took it that way. For whatever reason, they were angry with him. And it says that they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of a hill on on which their city was built, that they might throw him over the cliff. By the way, you might have missed this. It's the Sabbath. Is it legal to kill the person on the Sabbath? They might want to ask themselves that in the throes of all of this. They might want to consider, is it legal to kill a person on the Sabbath? They're not even allowed to light a fire. But they're justified in their righteous anger right now to pick up a man and throw him off a cliff. That they've known their whole life, by the way. They were pretty upset, I guess. they were so caught up in this, they didn't stop to think, well, maybe we should kill him tomorrow, not on the Sabbath. It says that they took him to the cliff, and then in verse 30 says, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. This is one of my favorite pictures in my mind, where you've got a crowd taking Jesus to a a cliff that they're going to throw him over. Like the whole crowd has come over. Again, not a stranger. These are people that know him, that he knows. They're going to take him to a cliff. And Jesus just gets there and he stops. And I don't know exactly how it happened. I think they did a pretty good job in The Chosen. There's an episode about this where he just turns around and he says, this isn't happening today. And then he just walks. And they're all just like dumbfounded. Maybe, maybe Jesus just stopped looked over the cliff and was like, nah, not today, and then just walks. And they're like, has anyone seen Jesus? (laughs) Whatever it was, Jesus was like, no, I'm in control here. I'm in control. They were in their, you know, righteous anger, ready to kill him, throw him off a cliff. And he was just like, no, no, not today. I don't think so. And he just passes through their myth. Maybe it's just that they were so caught up in the, "Ah, let's kill him, you grab him, you grab his legs, and you grab his arms, we'll go one, two, three, and they're like, okay, where is he? I thought you had him. Thirty-one, it says, and he went down to Capernaum in a city of Galilee and was teaching them in the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teachings, for his words were with authority. Do you know the big difference that we see between Jesus and every other rabbi is Jesus taught from his own authority. He didn't have to quote other rabbis or what they taught. Jesus spoke from his own authority. He spoke from his own word. This is his own word. So he spoke with an authority that they had never heard before, and they were astonished to hear it. 
Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You know, the demons know who Jesus is, and they do not question it. They don't question it. People do it all the time, (laughs) but they know. And this man shouts out, this demon shouts out, says, let us alone, we know who you are. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet, come out of him. That's authority right there. Be quiet, come out. And when the demon had thrown him in the midst and came out, he did not hurt him. And they were all amazed and spoke to themselves saying, what a word this is. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Did you know that at this time there were Jewish exorcists? And they had all kinds of rituals and sayings, and they would try and use other, you know, names of others that would try to cast out demons. But from what we can read, they weren't real successful at it. But Jesus steps in under his own authority and says, be quiet, come out. And the the evil spirit comes out. Jesus has authentic power. Man was trying to, they, they at their, their, their time, were, they were trying to duplicate maybe a power that they had heard of or even seen demonstrated, but it wasn't theirs. And you know, in fact, there's a, there's a story uh, in the Bible where it says that there were some men who had witnessed um, Jesus and his disciples, or they had heard about Jesus and witnessed his disciples casting out demons. Um, and so um, they had actually witnessed Paul do it. And so these seven brothers came upon this man who was demon-possessed, and they came, they came up to him, and, and they said, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches. Now, talk, that's like, you know, like a friend of a friend of a friend, kind of a... <laughs> we cast you out, and the, it says that the demons laughed at them and said, Jesus, we know. Paul, we know. We don't know who you are. And by the way, they didn't know who Jesus was either. But they were trying to use his power that they had heard someone else. And it says that the demon, the the demon-possessed man, leapt on all seven of them and beat them all up and tore off their clothes so they had to run away naked. Uh, I like that detail because, you know, um, in their culture, to be naked was like a huge disgrace. Should still be, don't you think? (laughs) What's happened? (laughs) they did not have authentic uh, power or authority they were trying to use a friend of a friend's power doesn't work that way jesus uses his own authority his own power and he called them out and it says in verse 37 that a report about him went out to every place in the surrounding region and now he rose from the synagogue and he entered simon's house but simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever and they made a request for him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and served them. Again, that's just such a funny image in my head. I mean, there's this woman, and she's in bed. She's got a high fever. She's sick, and Jesus comes in, and he says, be well, and she just sits right up. And is like, who wants coffee? And off she goes, and she's got, I got an entomans ready to go. She's ready to serve, just like that. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any, this is verse 40, those who had any that were sick 
with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's so funny. I mean, they just can't help but to identify Jesus for who he is. Even the demons have to identify Jesus. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now when it was day, he departed and went to a deserted place, and the crowd saw him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. Do you know that it's estimated by Bible scholars that at this time and even after every place that Jesus went, you know, after he did these things, there was thousands of people following him around trying to get to Jesus. And at some point, you know, he's kind of overwhelmed, and and, uh, there's so many people and he says to them, I must, uh, it says, now when it was day, he departed and he went to a deserted place and the crowd saw him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also because of this is the purpose I came. He says, the purpose I came was to preach the word that the father gave me. You understand that Jesus was a preacher who healed, not a healer who preached. You see the difference? Do you understand the difference? His primary purpose for being here was to preach the gospel. In doing that, he also healed some people sometimes. And in this case, it was a lot of people in this one particular place. And it says that he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So it was, by the way, you know, Galilee is a region, right? It's made up of a lot of towns and cities. In fact, Josephus had recorded that there were 204 towns or cities in the region, and each one had at least 15,000 people living in them. That meant in this region, there were how many? Like 3,060,000 people living in this area. That's a lot of people. It wasn't like it was like this little village of three or four or 12, and that little village. We're talking serious numbers of people here. And verse, uh, chapter 5, it says, So that there was a, the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he spoke. So he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. In case you don't know, that's the Sea of Galilee also. And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And they got in one of them, of the boats, which was Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. So when he comes across Simon, who's sitting there washing out his nets, you know, they fished at nighttime. So now it's morning and they're washing out their nets on the shore. And Jesus comes along with this big crowd and says, look, can I just get into your boat to get away from the crowd and go out a little bit so that I could preach them from your boat? And I don't know if you've ever um, like stayed someplace where there was like a lake or you, you like you stayed at a house on the lake. And you could hear the people talking on the other side of the lake because your voice travels right across the water, right? And so Jesus takes advantage of using this like natural amphitheater here to speak to these people and and multiply his voice over the water. And he says to Simon Peter, hey, um, can we go out a little bit? So, you know, Simon says, okay. And when he had stopped speaking, it says, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. I love this picture. So, but Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night 
and caught nothing. How good of a fisherman could... Is there any time outside of Jesus' intervention that the Bible ever records Peter ever catching a single fish? (laughs) I mean, how good of a fisherman could he have been? But he says, "Um, Jesus, we've been fishing all night. We don't fish in deep water, by the way. We fish in the shallows, just throw our nets in. We haven't caught anything, but you know what? Okay, Uh, at your word, I will let down my net. And so Peter has, you can see here, no real faith in Jesus here. He has just the tiniest bit of obedience. He doesn't want to obey. He's just like, I'm tired. We fished all night. I'm fishing. My, I've already cleaned my nets. But you know what, Jesus? Okay. I have a little bit of obedience. And so he goes ahead and they go out. And it says that when he had dropped his nets, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And so Jesus says, why don't you just go out and drop your, your net? And, and Simon reluctantly obeys with very little faith of anything good coming of this, does it anyway. And there is a huge catch of fish, so many fish that it fills up his boat. It begins to sink. He calls over for his partner, which are James and John, by the way, who are right down the shore with their father Zebedee. And they come over and they help them pull the fish. It fills both boats after they've toiled all night and caught no fish. When Simon sees this, he falls down and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. There's a realization that comes over Peter when he sees this happening, that this is somebody. Now, you know what? I'm wondering why Peter's so surprised because wasn't it like yesterday that Jesus just healed his mother-in-law of a fever? I mean, what? You know, has, have you ever, uh, ever experienced that in your own life? You know, had a moment where Jesus answered some prayer in your life and you're like, praise the Lord. And like a month later, you're, you're back in that same place. Like, I don't know if, I just don't know. I don't, rather than to be like, Lord, it's yours anyway. Depart from me, he says, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish for they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, for now you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats back to land, they forsook all and they followed him. Jesus had said, "Um, you know what? I want you to follow me. This is the thing. Matthew, go back to Matthew now. This is what Matthew records. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon and called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting their net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. You see now, you know, it's a little helpful to read the other gospel because otherwise, if you just read Matthew, you would think, oh, he just walked up to these fishermen and said, hey, follow me. And they were like, mm, okay. Left their livelihood, their nets, their everything behind and just followed him. But you could see that Jesus worked in their lives. He was like, I am somebody. I am the one. And they were like, oh, it's undeniable. 
I must go. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's actually remarkable that Peter was able to bring anyone to Jesus based on his fishing record. Never caught any fish that I can see. And maybe Jesus was like, you're a terrible fisher person. Fisher, fisher, (laughs) fisherman. That's not a hard word. But he says, you will be an amazing fisher of men because of me. Right? There's probably something really cool there, and I haven't developed it yet. I was just thinking about it the other day between the, like using that analogy with Peter saying, well, they're fishermen, so they understand, you know, drawing people in, using the net, drawing them in, not to me, to the boat. And, you know, Jesus is like the boat in the analogy because you're, I'm, not drawing you to, I'm not drawing people to me. I'm drawing people to Jesus. So Jesus is like the boat in that analogy. And then I thought, oh, well, you know, Jesus also talks about salvation um, is, is in the boat when it comes to Noah. And, you know, that's how Noah and his family were saved in, in the boat. But yeah, maybe we'll develop that another time. <clears throat> then immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going from there, he saw two others, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him again. You know, it's, it's really neat to see the, the filled-in version of the other Gospels of what had just happened and what they had just experienced. And then it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought up to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This was a huge, massive movement. People were coming in from every area with their friends and family and themselves who were sick or, or um, when this says uh, various diseases, tormented. It actually just means in pain for some reason. Tormented is in pain. That they were coming because they were sick. They had diseases. They were in pain for some reason. Some were demon-possessed. We see that quite often in the New Testament. This one says epileptics, but actually that word in Greek is lunatic, which is talking about mental illness and paralytics, and he healed them. We look at this, and we see that all these various different things, sickness, pain, disease, uh, mental illness, um, possession, um, people who were paralyzed, all these different things, all these different ailments, but the answer was the same for all of them. They all needed Jesus. He was the remedy for all of them. You know that we don't, uh, we see diseases, pain, mental illness, we see, you know, um, paralytics. We don't see a lot of demon possession these days in this country, do we? <laughs> well, <laughs> some, people, um, some people think 
that um, there still is the same amount of, of demon possession going on in this country. It's just, it's just diagnosed as something else. Maybe, but, but I see Jesus here talking about all sorts of things, like, like he says, demon possession and mental illness here. They're different things. You know, people who have diseases, people who are sick, you know, maybe that's true, but I don't know. Some people believe that in the countries that have long histories under the influence of the gospel are less susceptible to demonic attacks or demon possession. Maybe. I don't know. That's what I think. This is what I think. I think that the devil has discovered that in this country and at this time, anonymity and spiritual skepticism is a far more effective tool. Do you understand what I mean? It's this. Rather than for you to see a demon-possessed person and then have to come to grips with the idea that there is a spiritual realm that exists, the devil says it's actually more effective if you don't believe in me at all. Because if you don't believe in me at all, then you don't have to believe in any kind of a spiritual realm. And then God is a force, a tree, a nothing. But if you're faced with the reality time and time, day after day, that there is a spiritual realm because you're seeing demoniacs, you have to come to grips with the idea that there is a spiritual realm out there and that there might be something to this God. There might be something to this Jesus because now it's in your face. You have to deal with it. And so the devil's like, I'm happier. Just, you just pretending that I don't exist at all. I don't have to convince you. It's better that you don't believe in me. But gang, devil is real. I'm telling you, he's real. He's there. And, you know, when I talk about the devil, the devil was a created being. Just so you know, in case you're not familiar, he was a created being, which means he's not all places all the time, doesn't know all things. He's a created being. But with him, when he fell, went a third of the angel army. Do you know how many angels that is? A, a third of a lot. I don't know. No one knows. It's just it's a lot. I know the new people are like, oh my gosh, he knows how many angels? I said, no, I don't know. A third of however many were created. But that seems like a lot to me. So when I say like the devil is, you know, tempting me, I'm just, I don't think so much of myself that I'm thinking the devil is tempting me. Is like he taught someone who trained 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 someone, and that guy is the one that's afflicting me. And same for you. I don't believe that the devil's wasting his time on me. But it is. But but it's just kind of easier to say the devil's tempting you. But it is him and his influence and his army that is real. They're out there. Anyway. Regardless of the ailment, it says that Jesus healed them all. He redeemed them all. Thank you, Lord. I especially like that, especially for right now, because it's Communion Sunday today also. Um, and, and I've been thinking about this, this idea of communion and, and redemption, and there's this beautiful part of the Passover, this beautiful part of the Passover dinner, um, where the parts of the dinner, if you're not familiar, they're, they're, they're all representing something that has to, that reminds them 
of their uh, bondage and slavery and the, the place that they were taken out of by God and freed. And, um, and each thing in the Passover dinner represents some part of that. And as they go through, there are certain readings and blessings that are read. And um, in the Passover dinner, there are four cups of wine. And each cup has a special blessing that goes with it that is, that is uh, connected to Exodus chapter 6. So um, when they're sitting there, you know, when Jesus was gathered for the Last Supper, it's the Passover meal that he's eating with his um, guys, and he takes the first cup, the first blessing. The first cup, the first blessing, would have been him talking about um, God saying, I took you out. He says to the people, I took you out. And Jesus, I'm sure, would have, they would have read that, that part, I took you out. As a reminder that they were taken out of bondage, as, uh, out of Egypt, they were taken out of bondage. And Jesus, you know, he's starting to craft a message here. I, I take you out. Then he would get to that second cup somewhere along in the, the meal. He would take that second cup. And the second cup actually means that I will rescue you. God says to the people, I will rescue you. And that's what they, they say that. And then they drink from that second cup. The third cup is the blessing that says, that God says to them, I will redeem you. Now, this is why this is really interesting to me. It is at this point in the Passover, at the third cup, the cup that says, I will redeem you, that Jesus says, this cup, is my blood that has, will be spilt for the redemption of the world. This third cup is the cup of redemption that you've known forever, but I'm saying that my blood is this cup. It represents my blood, which will redeem you. And then the fourth cup. In the Passover meal, the fourth cup was, I will take you up as a nation, as my people. That's what the fourth cup represents. I will take you up and you will be my people. Now, Jesus says after that third cup, he says very specifically, let me read it to you. He says, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. He says the cup that you've always known through the Passover meal, which was that I will take you up as my people. Jesus says, I will not drink of this cup now until we are all together in heaven. So he drinks that third cup. This is my cup of redemption. After that, he says, I'm not going to drink of the fourth cup as you normally would. I'm not going to do that because as this cup now represents my blood, that which is spilled for your redemption, this cup will share together in my father's kingdom. So today we're going to take communion together. I don't want you to think uh, as you are holding that little cup, the little cup, I want you to remember that that's the third cup that Jesus says this cup represents my blood, which is shed for, the, for many for the remission of sin so that you are or can be redeemed. So we're going to take it. Um, I thought we were going to sing a song. Oh, no, you just got to be ready to go. You got to be ready to roll whenever. I don't ever know what I'm going to do. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, how thankful I am. Uh, Lord, again, I'm thankful that you did not give in to temptation 
for the glory of the kingdoms of this world, but Lord, went to the cross for my sake. Uh, Lord, forgive us for the days that we forget that. Lord, forgive us for the days that we take you for granted and what you did for us, Lord. Lord, forgive us for thinking too highly of ourselves. Lord, forgive us of the days that we just are so stubborn, we cannot admit that we are wrong, even when it comes to something having to do with you or your word. Lord, because maybe it upsets our apple cart. Lord, I pray for each person here that, uh, that does know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would cling to the word, cling to you uh, as they go out this place today, Lord. I pray that each one of us would start, this, start each day. Lord, what do you want to do today? What have you already planned that I get to be a part of? And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you personally, Lord, that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that through your Holy Spirit, you would, Lord, bring them, draw them to the belief that you died for them, that you died to forgive their sins, Lord. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I look forward to your return. But while we're here, Lord, use us. I surrender.